0: You've got no excuses,
1: you have to sit and write. Hello there, listener, and welcome to episode 89 of Good Copy, Bad Copy, the B2B copywriting podcast. This month, we're talking about tools, tips and tricks to make you a better writer, We have hints and highlights from this year's Copywriting
2: Conference. I've been talking to Julia Pierce from Literature and Latte about the writing tool Scrivener. Plus, a Deputy Chief Information Security Officer tackles the Anonymous Five and tells us what it's like to experience a data breach firsthand.
1: And we kick off our search for 2020's best piece of B2B content. I'm David Maguire, Creative Director at Radix Communications, and as you can probably hear, I'm joined by a familiar guest co-host for this episode. It's copywriter and content lead, Katie Eddy. How's it going, Katie?
2: It is going well. Thank you for having me back, despite how terrified I am.
1: Are, are you less <laughs> terrified than you were last time?
2: Uh, I think it's been too long. I think I re-terrified myself.
1: Oh, oh dear.
2: <laughs> I think it's it's been sort of four months since I've done this, and... um. Yeah, I've been thinking about it too much.
1: Oh, okay. So. Well, we'll 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 try not to, uh, not to not to play on that too. And you've done your first interview for for the podcast this this month, yes. so we've got that coming up. Enjoy that.
2: It was great. Yeah, Julia is. Um, she's obviously done this many times before in the sort of nearly, I think, fifteen years that literature and latte has been going. So she was professional as hell the whole way through, which um, certainly helped to make my life easier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the uh the listener can't see the the zoom video of, of of your house but this is going out sort of a day or two before Halloween and your house is this isn't it's especially spooky seasons like your Christmas right
2: <laughs> it is it is the most wonderful time of the year <laughs> um and really, I think people should be grateful to us Goths, because Halloween is really the last bastion that's stopping Christmas encroaching even earlier in the year. We are the last line of defence in September and October, and I own every form of bunting that has ever been produced for Halloween, I'm pretty sure.
1: Well, I, And we should thank you for that, because you stopped the encroachment of Christmas further into the August. So yes, thank you. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, listener, I'm sure you're probably used to it by now, but it's worth repeating. We're recording this in a socially distanced way, so we might not manage the audio quality we'd usually like. Apologies for that, but it's a packed episode with lots of good things to get your teeth into. Speaking of which... Best B2B content of 2020. Ah. Uh, <laughs> It's time to start our search for the best B2B content of 2020. And listener, we need your help.
2: We're compiling our initial long list of the best pieces of B2B content published this year. And we really want to hear your nominations. All you need to do is send us an email or a short voice memo to podcast at radix-communications.com and let us know what's your favourite bit of content from this year and what's so good about it. Or, if you prefer, you can contact us on Twitter at radixcom. That's R A D I X C O M.
1: Once we've got our long list, we'll have a selection process and a vote, uh, and we'll announce the winners in our end of year episode. That winner could be a blog, an e book, a video, a turtle doc, or something else entirely. Katie, if you remember, our winner in 2019 was Octopus Group and Hectare Agritech, and with an app called tudder essentially it was tinder for cows
2: i i had genuinely managed to forget about that in in the sort of the mess of this year but that's um that's a nice thing to remember i think a
1: simpler time
2: Uh, tinder for cows is probably nicer than tinder for people in my experience i think
1: most things are nicer than tinder for people (laughs) anyway moving swiftly on We talk a lot about how B2B tech companies can use writing to reach their target audiences, but Katie, you've been talking to a software company whose target audience is writers. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Literature and Latte are the company behind Scrivener and Scapple, which are tools used by writers worldwide. I've used their software on my own creative projects over the years and wanted to find out if they might be useful in our copywriting work too, as well as what it's like to try and market to us as an audience. So I spoke to director Julia Pierce and I started by asking her to explain the two products and how they came about.
0: We published two pieces of software, actually. There's Scrivener, which is aimed at people who are um, sort of creating one document out of lots of uh, different documents. Mm-hmm. And then there's Scapple as well, which is more of a kind of like a free mind mapping type of software. Uh, the company itself actually started in London. Gosh, when would it have been? About 2006. Uh, Keith Blount, who's the creative director here, he was um, doing a PhD at the time and also writing a novel and looked around at the software on the market. There are various things that he wanted to do. Um, He tried out a few different apps and programmes and so on, and none of them really sort of married up with what he was looking to do. Mm -hmm. So what he did actually was taught himself to code, which is a great procrastination technique when you're trying to write a novel (laughs) and also write a PhD. Um, And then, yeah, created Scrivener. We we created a sort of a rough version, really, Um, a bit of input for me as well. I used to be a journalist, so I was doing sort of various tasks as well and sort of gave a bit of input on types of features that you know which I would find useful as well um, and out of that was born Scrivener um, originally it looked a little different and um, Keith launched a sort of a very very sort of small trial version with uh, National um, Novel Writing Month, which is an American competition where you try and get um, people to write a fifty thousand words uh, novel in the month of November. Back then, it was a really small competition, um, just America centric. Um, he'd been doing some stuff on the boards there, and went, "Look, you know, w- would anyone like to?" to buy this and quite a few people came forward and went yeah you know this, this looks really interesting we'd love to try it out so he pulled the trial version that he'd published for them and kind of took on board some of the feedback they'd given went away recreated it and in January 2007 we launched Scrivener sort of as it is now it's gone through a few revisions since then but um yeah that's that's what kicked off the whole company
2: that's incredible I mean <laughs> just the idea of trying to organize a novel and a PhD simultaneously is mind-boggling and I guess that's um that's something that certainly I'm familiar with and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with that kind of um constant struggle to organize your thoughts and organize all the different documents that you have to deal with and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah that's it I mean actually it turned out to be really useful because um unlike a lot of software that's on the market we're not Enti- although Swivner was originally launched for people writing novels, we're not actually kind of novel centric in a way. Um, it's been designed so you can, yeah, you can write a PhD in it. Um, you can, you know, prepare legal documents if you've got lots of different case files. Um, you can, you know, use it for organising blogs. We, we've got a lot of different users who, who use it for a lot of different things. And I think that's actually really helped us. And um, the idea behind the software is just that you can kind of bend it to your needs rather than having to fit what you're trying to do into the kind of constrictions of the software itself.
2: A lot of applications tend to have quite, I guess... Strict boundaries for how um, different bits of their software work. So I think it's probably really useful for people to have that flexibility. Well, I think that's
0: it. a lot of it's quite prescriptive. Um, I think you know, even if you ask around the the, you know, the average office, people put together something like a business report in a completely different way. You know, legal reports, business reports, um, even something like me you know, writing a university thesis. People approached it from different angles. Some people like to plot everything out first of all. Other people like to just sit down get writing and then kind of think about their structure afterwards and Mm -hmm. and that's where we're going with the software really we we kind of recognize that yeah everyone does different things in different ways and we just wanted to make something which actually allows them that flexibility. Wonderful so you mentioned uh, some of the different types of
2: people that'll use it have there been any I guess unexpected uses of it over the years that
0: you didn't think of? Absolutely. Um, we've had people who are kind of Wiccans and we get quite a lot of sort of slightly strange American users sometimes. Um, so we've had sort of Wiccan priestesses collecting their spells. Um, we, we did a customer survey a good few years ago and yeah, it, it, it did turn up some really interesting uses and, and things you wouldn't have thought of. I mean, I guess at the time blogging was becoming a big thing. So there were people organising their blogs within it. I and mean, we always thought about it as being designed for, you know, more long form writing. But actually, I think people find the the file structure pretty useful for just keeping things, yeah, like blogs together. And then um, we have um, features within the software as well. So you can tag... Um, I guess different documents, depending on their content. so you'd have people writing a blog, and some of their posts would be say on beauty, others would be on writing because they'd be writing a novel at the same time as reviewing makeup or something. And so you can tag all of those different um posts with their topic and then using our collections feature, then you can kind of draw them all together, so then you can look back and think, well, you know, maybe I wrote about that too much, so maybe I won't write about it in future it's It's just a way of kind of organizing everything, but yeah, being adaptable. We have a lot of people, also quite a lot of pastors in America as well, who organise their sermons within it, which, again, is something we never would have thought of. But <laughs> yeah, people like to compile recipe books within it as well. I definitely um, didn't see
2: that answer going to Wiccan priestesses when I, when I asked that one. <laughs> so thinking about, uh, I guess, our audience a little bit, um, how do you think it slots into marketing and copywriting? Do you think it would
0: uh, work for our purposes? Well, I think so. Um, Again, going back to the, the principles I just sort of discussed, I think if you're, you know, if you have sort of a lot of files about a company, then it'd be quite good to kind of track the different things you've written. You could tag you know tag the different um i guess the different documents that you've produced about them in the past and make sure that your message is um, fairly constant throughout um another good thing about Scrivener actually is that you can split the screen so what you do is you import a document into it um, and then you sort of press a button to split the screen so you can actually look at some of the documents that you're writing from at the same time as you're sort of typing in the other half of the screen and I know you know if you if you think about work maybe that you've done in the past where you've had a PDF from a company um, and you're thinking okay I've got to make some notes on this so you're kind of flicking to into Word making some notes flicking back into the PDF and then clicking on the wrong thing and it gets quite irritating so actually being able to view your work alongside and you can import um Word files you can import videos you can import um, audio files as well into Scrivener so it's quite good in terms of the fact that you can just keep referring to that in the same pain whilst you're typing and you know sort of transcribing notes and so on from a client interview that there are a lot of different I think different ways that you could adapt it and if you're yeah. writing something like a white paper as well again you know I don't know I don't know how much of that you do but again that tends to you know you have lots of files interviews um I guess you know sort of research papers and so on and then that, that again might be something that you know you could draw in
2: yeah I think that's a, a really good point I think the um, the number of documents that go into working on one piece of copy is uh it's mad there's so much uh to flick between so yeah consolidating it i think is really important
0: yeah that's the idea behind it really as well and um, it's just bringing to, being able to bring together all the documents that you have scattered around your computer in one place so you don't lose anything if it's all within sort of one file then you know where everything is you're not kind of going oh what did I call it you know having to search through all your um, document files and word files and so on you can drag it all into one place I mean the idea behind Scrivener is that it's really like a virtual ring binder with everything that you need drag it into it. And then you have each file within Scrivener itself is like a piece of paper with an index card stuck to it. So we have a virtual cork board within the file as well. And you can view that and you can drag those um, virtual index cards around and that rearranges your files behind it. So it's really easy to kind of reorder stuff. But again, the idea is just really to have this virtual file with everything within it
2: yeah and i think um we're talking a lot about digital documents but um as somebody who worked a lot on note cards over the years uh, the idea of not being able to lose one of those down the back of the sofa is quite appealing (laughs) that's a really good point i hadn't thought of that
0: but yeah great
2: yeah and you never have to try and search for whatever keyboard smash you use to name a document when you're in a
0: rush It's just all in one place. No, that's it. Yeah, Yeah. it's just, it just takes the irritation out of writing, really. That was the aim.
2: Yeah, stop giving yourself excuses to not actually do the writing, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's just to to save time as well. Yeah. So, you know, you think, oh, no, I've, you know, I've forgotten where that is. I've got to go and look for it. And it just takes that time out of it. So, yeah, yeah, you've got no excuses. You have to sit and write. I'm not sure what I do without my excuses.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, for us at Radix, obviously we're writers about tech. Um, we tend to be marketing software to uh, decision makers and IT companies and things like that. Do you think uh, there's something different about trying to market tech to writers specifically? Do you think you have to approach that differently?
0: Well, yes, possibly. I mean, a lot of the um, a lot of the marketing we've done has actually been via um, word of mouth. I think I think really. If you've got a solution that actually offers something to writers, then they'll pick it up. Um, A lot of people are quite curious. I I think one of the problems is as well that there wasn't really that much on the market before we came into it as well. A few sort of smaller apps. But people were getting very fed up with things like Word. Um, it's, It's not made for a longer form document. Um, And I think, yeah, that's that's part of it. If, If there's a gap in the market where there's a real frustration with what's available at the moment, then I think, you know, if you come into it with the right tool, then it will take off. And people will talk about it as well. The thing with writers is that they're quite a kind of close-knit group, really. They have certain forums um, and places that they like to talk to each other. And I think if you, you know, if you give them something good, then they will talk about it. I guess conversely, if you give them something they don't like, then they'll probably talk about that as well. But luckily we weren't in that position. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, you know, it it seemed to take off.
2: Yeah, and I guess uh, the NaNoWriMo community was probably a big part of that as well.
0: Well, that's it. We've grown as they've grown as well. We still sponsor, actually. I think I counted up, it's our 12th year. Of sponsoring them. And that's grown as well. When we first joined in, it was kind of, yeah, it was just within America, hence National Novel Writing Month. Now it's an enormous international organization. Um, and they have a couple of smaller sort of camps earlier on in the year, but also they do a lot of outreach work to young writers, which is fantastic and which we really support as well. They've um, done a lot of work with school children, trying to get them to write as well. So, you know, that, that sort of supporting literacy is brilliant.
2: Yeah, I suppose there's. Um... There's so many different applications for this and it's, um, if you start early with these kind of things, it's kind of instilling good habits so people don't get to my age and lose note cards down the back of the sofa and so on (laughs) and so forth.
0: i know that's it well i think we were helped we're in the right place at the right time as well um everything is kind of moving online and instead of you know having to ship physical discs with our software on the app store appeared when we were kind of in our infancy as well so that you know it was kind of you know the stars aligned really but yeah it worked out nicely
2: so uh i guess what's next for literature and latte Uh, i guess There's probably always work to be doing on Scrivener for adding things in, but um,
0: where do you see this going? Well, that's it. And um, sort of the technology, I mean, we program on the Mac side and then have a team in Australia who do have um, our Windows side. But yeah, you know, the, the technology, the operating systems behind everything are constantly evolving. Um, you know, you've got new looks to the software, different capabilities that say that Apple are building in and so on. So we're, you know, we're, we're constantly reinventing ourselves to make the most of those. And also actually, you know, just occasionally taking, um, taking a bit of a break and looking at what we produce um, where the market itself is going as well so yeah I think that's it we're we're just starting to have a bit of a rethink about you know our next big redesign and where we're going to go with that
2: yeah and I guess you've spoken
0: about how important your community is I guess user feedback is probably a massive part of what you do well that's it we're just actually launching um, another user survey we haven't done one for a good few years but it just it's just nice to find out I think what your customers are doing with it, again, to find out these weird and wonderful uses and actually how people are using the different features within the program, whether some are redundant now, um, you know, whether some are really kind of like best beloved and j- just to sort of work out, you know, where we position ourselves with that feedback.
2: Cool, great. So part of your team is, is based uh, down here in Cornwall, uh, just, just like Radix. Uh, what's it like being a tech company that works out of Cornwall?
0: It's really good. We absolutely love it. Um, when we first started out, it was kind of in a back bedroom in southeast London. Um, within a couple of years, we moved down to Cornwall and it's been really good. Again, you know, the stars aligned. Where we were living, they just put in the first trials of super fast broadband, which really, really helped because in those days, you had to, um, Apple would produce. You know, that they're kind of like they're updates for developers and then you'd have to download them. And these were enormous files when where the company was first based on the outskirts of True it didn't have the super fast broadband. So we'd actually have to get um, one of our colleagues in Norwich who did have it to download the file and then post it to us so that we can <laughs> put it onto our computers and then use that for sort of coding updates um and then yeah and then we moved and the new office was um yeah was just sort of just outside of devra and just off that spine where they did the first cornish trials and it was excellent it was just you know it basically revolutionized our lives and i think actually we got it faster down here than we did you know we would have done if we'd stayed being in a city so yeah that, that was really good and there's quite a lot of support as well for um for businesses down in Cornwall especially online businesses now as well and mm-hmm. um, we, we did make some use of um of funding from GetSet as well who really helped us with some of our branding and um, that's that's the EU funding GetSet for growth and, and they were fantastic as well we've got our
2: own little Silicon Valley here in Cornwall I think it's a really supportive environment for um up-and-coming tech businesses
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really good um, down here. You know, we've, we've got the space and there are a lot of people who want to live down here for the lifestyle. So if we mm-hmm. can create a really good network of all these little tiny companies which are springing up down here, that would be fantastic. And of, of course, as well, when it comes to online companies, there's a huge um, wealth of design expertise coming out of Falmouth University. So great. You know, let's tap into that as well. If we can bring all that together, then I think Cornwall's really going places with this.
2: Wonderful. So uh, to help our listeners out, if they want to learn more about Scrivener, where would they go to um, find out more
0: about you guys and what you do? okay so our website is www.literatureandlate.com um we're also on twitter uh, scrivener app and also instagram as well which is uh, scrivener underscore app um and yeah twitter so we, we've got sort of like a, a decent sized social media presence but for sure we do a um a 30-day free trial so if any of this sounds of any interest to anyone then get over and, you know try it out and just just see what you think really um
2: yeah So internally, we've been talking a lot about uh, digging into some non-standard applications to see how that affects our writing process. So maybe one of our guys will give it a go.
0: Yeah, sure. Just, yeah, let me know. Let me know how you get on. It's it's always really, really good to get some feedback and, um and just to see how kind of like it helps you again, you know, in marketing agency, it's, you'll be using it in a completely different way to someone who's say writing a novel, but it's, it's great that, you know, that you can try and adapt it to what you do. Just, yeah, let me know how you get on. That'd be great.
2: Thanks Julia for being so generous with your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. That was a really
1: great interview, Katie. How did it feel talking to the person behind a software package that you've actually used yourself?
2: A little bit starstruck, genuinely, because um, Scrivener is kind of it's been popular in the writing circles I frequent for years. And genuinely up until I started working at Radix I didn't even realise that they're based like 20 minutes up the road from me.
1: <laughs> I know it's crazy right?
2: So yeah as, as soon as um we got chatting it was um it was really nice to have a bit of a I guess a behind the scenes look at something that I've um I've kind of organically come across in my life. Yeah,
1: and what, one of the things you talked about there when we talk about the communities that you're part of, so NanoRimo that you that you talked about, um, is is that sort of one of the, the the communities that you kind of had in mind? Because you've blogged in the past about how you can apply that in copywriting work. You know what you've what you've learnt from that community, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um so they've been, yeah, sponsors of NanoRimo for years. Um
1: So that's national novel writing, novel writing. month. And that's yes. where you have to do a hundred thousand words a day or something.
2: Fifty thousand words in thirty days, which is I think works out as one thousand six hundred and sixty seven words a day. And back when I was a teenager that felt unattainable and then I got a job as a professional writer. And turns out that's just most days um, <laughs> um yeah they've been sponsoring that for a few years and uh often um you'll have pep talks from writers who have published and they have written their drafts in Scrivener um I have written two of my nine novel drafts in Scrivener many many moons ago back when I did that <laughs> um and um, like I was saying to Julia, it's um, it's really fantastic to get everything into one place, particularly because I'm somebody who will keep notes on you know Google Drive and in Dropbox and on bits of paper that I use as coasters and so on and so forth. So having all of that in one place, plus all the sort of standard word processing stuff is really useful.
1: And so could you see how that I mean might that be helpful then to use something like Scrivener in professional practice as a copywriter when you're writing b2b content or not so much
2: I can definitely see the potential for someone who wants to get really kind of hands-on with keeping everything um all in one place and all consolidated because like the the thing I'm writing today I think I've got four documents to reference and that's that's quite a small number in the grand scheme of things. There's often projects where there'll be 10 or 15 things I have to go digging around <laughs> in and that doesn't even count things that I've had to pull offline for research and things like that. So... Yeah, I think from a word processing perspective, it's pretty straightforward. But where it really does have an edge, I think, is in organisation. And if you're the kind of person that likes all of their pencils to be in a very neat row, it's probably a good thing to look at.
3: (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm looking at my pencils scattered over my desk. But, I mean, as as someone that has kind of, you know, drafted novel, you know, and you have various kind of uh, creative projects going on outside of work do you see a crossover between your professional work and personal creative work I mean other than things like Scrivener uh,
2: I I didn't really used to when I started out I think um, my approaches to both were quite different um, but over the, the past four years of professional writing, I think I've taken a lot of my habits from my day job into how I approach creative work. Um which not so much the the way I write, although I am definitely a better writer than I've ever been, just through, you know, sheer quantity over the years. Um but in terms of how I approach things like research and how I approach uh structuring and planning that's definitely something that I've I've taken home with me and I guess creatively I like to think that I bring that to my professional writing anyway. <laughs> but that remains to be seen. That depends on the topic, I think. Yeah,
1: like I mean it's one of the kind of the classic things that that, that you know that you say, you know, that that writers who are creative outside of work will bring all of that juice and all of that energy into their copywriting work. But like you, I've I've kind of found that stuff that I do at work has had just as great an impact on my own writing pleasure out you know outside of work sort of stuff that we've done you know particularly so I've been looking at writing like middle grade fiction or something and something like that thinking about kind of flesh Kincaid tools and you know stuff like an algorithms and looking like that you know to write to a certain grade level you know even though an algorithm is a, is a blunt tool it kind of gamifies it a bit trying mm. to get a certain score um and i think that you know it's cross-pollinated both ways for me i think
2: yeah definitely i think probably professional creative writers it's something that you develop naturally the longer you do that as well particularly for people that are published so um yeah i think having uh my professional writing um particularly like so closely critiqued the way we approach reviewing i think that's been useful because I've, um, I tend to apply a similarly, <laughs> shall I say, aggressive reviewing style to my own work, although I'm not usually brave enough to put that in front of anybody.
1: That's the reason why your nine novels are still drafts, right?
2: Oh, yeah. They live in a box under my bed and they're not coming out. The UK's National Copywriting Conference happened just a few weeks ago, and because it was digital this year, we were able to get a number of Radix writers involved. And listener, we've asked them to share personal highlights and takeaways in case it helps you improve your own writing. So here comes Lizzie, Ben, Kieran, and first, George.
4: I attended a training session with Tim Fidgen on persuasion in copywriting, and my key takeaway from the session was about the different forms of processing that uh, a person in your audience will apply when reading your writing. There is systematic processing, where they are looking at the finer details and really mentally engaging with your piece, and heuristic processing, where effectively they're taking a snapshot look and making a gut feeling reaction based on what you've presented towards them. It may sound basic, but what my real takeaway from that was, was uh, the suggestions Tim made about how to encourage either of those methods of processing in your audience through clever tricks in your copy. So you can encourage your audience to systematically process what you've written by, for instance, piquing their interest with an unexpected word or phrase or request, or you can increase the personal relevance by using language like referring to them as you and us, telling a story, using rhetorical questions, uh, etc. On the other hand, if you want to encourage more heuristic processing you can try and use things that elevate your reader's mood or actually increase the complexity of your message which can often cause people to default to the opposite way of looking at it and just using their, their gut reaction rather than, uh, than really engaging mentally with everything that you've written.
5: Choosing my favourite moment from this year's CopyCon was quite a big challenge and um, all the sessions are really really inspiring. I think the one that stands out though is on a Clement Hayes session Death to Perfectionism. Anna spoke about building resilience into our creative process by banishing the end goal of perfect. Perfect, as Anna makes clear, isn't actually real, and perfectionism is just a way to manage fear and maintain control of it. Instead, we need to realise that quality is a continuum. Even if you don't reach the end goal of perfect, you're still seeing improvement, and that should be celebrated. One thing she said that really resonated with me, as someone new to copywriting and a perfectionist, was about how we handle our fear responses. That twisty panicking feeling we get when we feel like something is out of our control, or in my case, I don't feel like I'm skilled enough for a piece of work. Instead of reaching for our normal coping mechanisms, like procrastinating because starting the work might result in failing at it, we treat that feeling as an alarm clock, take a moment to ground ourselves, then accept our good work is good enough and we need to treat ourselves kindly. Um, Yeah, and I think building that resilience could help make my work better in the long run.
6: Um, I took part in a blog training day hosted by Joe Watson, um, a freelance writer, editor and trainer with uh, a real potty mouth. Um, What I really liked about the day was talking among a small group of writers from diverse backgrounds, um, both professionally and culturally. Uh, There wasn't any pressure to outperform each other. It was just a a friendly discussion with people who either write blogs already, uh, be it for their their own business or a client um, or want to write more blogs. Um, it was also really good to revisit some of the fundamentals of blog writing, uh, the challenges we face as writers and just putting into context why we do this and how to make sure our blogs actually appeal to real people. My session highlight was hearing our trainer, Henrik von Haren, from Content Design London denounce the use of tracked changes. Instead, Henrik proposed a simpler way to receive feedback from your project's SME, reviewing your copy together. On the few occasions that I've been able to work like this, I've immediately seen the value. The SME, the one with the knowledge, can explain why they want to make a change. You, the one with the writing skills, can reflect this in the words on the page. Both of you leave the meeting with a finished copy doc. There's no more back and forth.
1: Fancy trying any of those tips, Katie?
2: Definitely. I think the one George was talking about, and I will take a brief pause to point out how much I enjoy George's phone manner. It's legendary in the office, (laughs) and I've been missing it in lockdown, so it was nice to hear it on a recording. But yeah, listening to him talk about persuasion was really interesting, because... It's not something I've thought about consciously for quite a long time. I did a critical thinking AS level many moons ago when they talk about the way you construct arguments and things like that. And at that point, I thought about it quite a lot when I was writing essays and stuff. And I think that's been internalised over the years, particularly when I did my degree. But now, uh, having that kick to uh, think about, I guess, strategically formatting the way you write and um including certain things to get people to engage in different ways is really interesting so probably that one
1: yeah I mean I think that one that really reminded me of uh you know thinking fast and slow with the you know the system one and system two decision making um Mm -hmm. and I've always kind of felt that particularly in b2b we really need to cater to, to both those things. I think, you know, for a long time, people said that B2B was very much about rational decision-making. And, you know, in my experience of it, you know, actually, there's a lot of decision-making in B2B that happens on, on gut feel, mm-hmm. but it still needs to be then rationalised and then explained. So you need people to just kind of prefer your option but then you need them to be able to explain why they prefer that option you know like the person in the b2c setting who might go yeah i kind of want the expensive car because it's more reliable you know or it's got this safety feature or something you know but they just kind of want it um and i think that in b2b you know I've often felt kind of, you know, the heart is the the Oval Office and the head is the press office. But I I think you you, you do need both. Keen to know what you thought about um, Kieran's tip about doing um, feedback live on a call rather than through track changes. I could see I could see his point. I don't think it would be the quickest, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it depends on how many stakeholders you have to wrangle I guess. But yeah, I mean track changes isn't the most fun way to do amends, is it?
2: It's it's not, although I think um for certain things it's just the clearest and fastest way to to get things fixed um if they need it. And I think also we've we've talked a lot about the the sort of going through the stages of grief a little bit when you get feedback. (laughs) And (laughs) my number one is often getting a little bit defensive. And I'd be terrified of doing that on a call because it's completely irrational. And what I don't want to do is be on a call with a stakeholder and for them to give me a completely sensible and backed up point of feedback and for my little internal voice to go, well, that's not fair. How dare you? (laughs) Even if it's fine and logically. And when you're looking at it in a written form, I have the time to work through that little... uh, Little spark of completely unnecessary anger in my brain. Um.
1: <laughs> I don't think you're alone. I don't, I don't think you're alone. You know, during kind of lockdown and stuff, when my when my kids were here, I think they, they they did kind of get the impression that daddy's job mostly involves swearing at a screen. Oh,
2: absolutely. I uh, I feel very sorry for my neighbours on some days, and then other days they turn their music on very loudly, and I feel less sorry for them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think. Um, The talk that Lizzie was talking about certainly engaged with, you know, a lot of people um, on the day. You know, I think there are there are people, um, a lot of copywriters for whom, you know, excessive perfectionism is a is a route to not entirely brilliant mental health in some cases um mm-hmm. you know and because people put so much of their own personal uh, self-worth and their, and, and their personal value on the quality of their copy and I guess that ties in with the the feedback piece as well but that really you know there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, of, of responses in the um uh, in the chat on the on the day just going, I feel so seen and honest stop <laughs> looking into my soul and things like that. So, yeah, I don't think Lizzie was alone in, in finding that one particularly uh, insightful.
2: Yeah, I think it's rare to find someone in our line of work who isn't at least an aspiring perfectionist. I think, for me, circling back to NaNoWriMo, I learned quite young that sometimes... It's a case of quantity over quality, and you can fix something that exists, but you can't fix it before you've written it, which yeah. I think is really important.
1: I think the author, I think Jody Picole was saying um, you can you can't edit a blank page,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which I you know I think I think is important. But it, I mean, overall, it's a, um, another excellent day. It's always a, a privilege when they kind of have me along for the for the ride you know, just kind of linking it together. I do, you know, the hosting bit and then people afterwards kind of come up to me and thank me for the day. And I'm like, I did nothing. I, you know, they gave me a script and I read it, you know, but it, I mean, it's lovely to, to do it. And there were some really, uh, really good examples this year. Robin Collins from We Transfer talked about how they keep things simple with lots of character, um, but get that out of the way when... Uh, in error messages and, and and things, because you know they're very aware that when someone's using WeTransfer, they're often up against a deadline and they haven't got time to to mess around. So tempering the your brand voice with a tone that that reflects the context of the of, of the audience, I, I thought was really brilliant. Um, and also, uh, Sandra Wu from Blinkist shared about some of the things that they've found through testing copy. And to have the point, I think, that that I've often made maybe on this podcast before about assume that people are not going to read everything and make sure that the headline, the first two sentences and the headings as you go down the page, you know, really tell your story, you know, that kind of F-shaped stuff. To have them then back that up with evidence of um, how that affects conversion rates was really... um, was really helpful i think those were kind of important highlights of the day for me but yeah i mean it's always great fun to hang out with other copywriters and yeah thanks once again to pro copywriters for running the event and having me along for the ride
2: before we go it's time for the anonymous five where people in key b2b personas give us brutally honest answers to the questions you were too afraid to ask
1: This month, we're talking to a Deputy Chief Information Security Officer, or DCISO, at a multi-billion dollar real estate company in the United States. Question one.
2: What's your biggest frustration in your job?
3: Having to deal with poor and uninformed decision making by senior execs. Often they will make a decision they think is a quick and easy win without understanding the risks they are taking with the data. For example, using an unsupported database for client information. When it is breached and that data is lost, they say it's not their fault and blame IT, even though IT recommended that they only use supported applications. For us in IS it is part of our job to educate and inform them about the value of the data, and options to protect it that are both appropriate and proportionate to its value.
1: Question two.
2: A lot of marketing now talks about data breaches as inevitable. Is that true? And if so, is it a regular thing for you or a rare
3: event? I believe it is inevitable. There are many low-level, accidental data leaks that are either not reportable or the data is of a low value, not personal or commercially sensitive. The ones that make the headlines are when an organization has been attacked by a malicious outsider that has exploited a weakness in that company's defenses for the publicity. Often in these cases it doesn't matter what value or the data types that have been stolen, the reputational damage on the company can still be serious. I'm pleased to say in the organization I am currently at, these are rare events. But they have happened and it is key that you have good continuity and response plans in place to deal with them as effectively and quickly as possible.
1: Question 3.
2: How do you feel when you see negative marketing content that focuses on the risk and potential impact of a cyber attack? Does that kind of thing work on you? Or does it help you to focus the organisation's attention?
3: This does depend. No publicity is bad publicity. And negative content in an article about the industry sector you are in can be used to your advantage and focus the minds of senior management. There is a risk too that the longer an organization goes without a breach, the more complacent they can get. And often think it won't happen to them. But also we do have to be careful and not cry wolf too many times. Question four.
2: What does life look like for you, if or when a breach
3: happens? One word, nightmare. All BAU work workers to take a back seat and all hands have to deal with the issue. I don't think the organisation realises the real cost of a breach, both in time and resources. In the short term, the focus is firefighting and putting in a quick fix, particularly at the time of the incident. Longer term, it can definitely help with driving improvements. But this takes time, money, and resourcing. A battle for another day.
1: Question five.
2: Where do you get your recommendations, information, and ideas about new approaches in tech? Who do you trust and why?
3: I get most out of a number of peer groups I belong to, and I'm lucky enough to be on the advisory board of one of them. I also read IS articles and updates as necessary. I'm not the most techie deputy CISO and trust the IS advisory and IS architects within my team to keep up to date and manage upwards as needed.
2: Thank you to our CISO. We can feel your frustration from this side of the Atlantic. And we've made a donation to Mind on your behalf.
1: What stood out for you there, Katie? Anything
2: interesting? One thing I found really interesting was that they agreed that they feel like data breaches are inevitable. And I always worry when we go into writing content like this that we're overstating it. And it's definitely reassuring to hear that it actually does resonate with them and they have a similar worry because I really don't want to be... Scaremongering. When I write this kind of content, I want it to be a realistic level of worry for people. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely good to know I'm not putting the fear up people for no good reason.
1: Yeah, that fear thing is 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 really weird because um, because the temptation is to write about it as a uh, a very scary but unlikely event, you know. Whereas they view it more as an everyday reality to be managed which is you know almost the 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 scariness of it and the likelihood of it mm-hmm. are almost opposite to ha- to how you might be tempted to write it if you're writing for that audience
2: mm, yeah I think this is what the anonymous five is really helping us out with internally is that we're getting a sort of yes or no from people on whether we're approaching things in the right way
1: yeah and like in this the fact that a breach is not necessarily always a bad thing because otherwise their leadership can get too complacent that's a really fine balance to negotiate right
2: yeah i think i don't know how you'd translate that into coffee in a way that <laughs> didn't drop somebody in it but it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about the kind of the balance between crying wolf and getting people worried about something that's not going to happen and yeah giving someone a little gentle kick up the bum if they haven't thought about it for too long
1: (laughs) yeah there's the content that's for them and then there's the content that's for the leadership and it's almost two different audiences I guess so yeah I mean so thank you um to to our uh, anonymous deputy chief information security officer for that uh it's very helpful uh, and thank you katie uh for co-hosting uh, i hope it hasn't been as scary as you thought it might
2: be. no i think my heart rate is entirely normal this time around
1: nice oh well <laughs> You're getting to be a pro and we'll have to have you back again soon. In the meantime, would you like to remind the listener of where they can contact us with any questions or indeed their nomination for the best B2B content they've seen this year?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So you can send a voice memo to podcast at radix-communications.com or find us on Twitter at radixcom. That's R-A-D-I-X-C-O-M.
1: Thanks again for listening. And until next time, remember, the worst enemy of creativity is self-doubt. Well, that and your brand guidelines, anyway.
4: Goodbye!